Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. And welcome to New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. My name is Kelly McFall from Newman University, and I'm the host of the show. Today's show is part of a two-part series on mass atrocities in Guatemala. A few weeks ago, I spoke with Roddy Brett, the author of the new book, The Origins and Dynamics of Genocide, Political Violence in Guatemala. Brett, at least in his book this time, was mostly interested in the way the genocide unfolded, how and why the government decided to engage in genocide, and the way ordinary citizens responded. Today, start the, the interview today starts where, where Brett left off. Elizabeth Oglesby and Diane Nelson are the editors of a recent issue of the Journal of Genocide Research. Each is an accomplished author and academic, and each has extensive experience in Guatemala. They've taken advantage of that background to recruit a group of experts to try and understand how genocide in Guatemala has been remembered, described, and judged. The Journal of Genocide Research is one of the most highly respected venues for this kind of contemplation, and the special issue more than meets its usual standards of quality. Diane is not able to be with us today, but I'm thrilled to have Liz Oglesby on the show to talk about the book. Liz teaches at the Center for Latin American Studies at the University of Arizona and has spent years researching events in Guatemala. I'm thrilled to have her as a guide to thinking about the long-term impact of the atrocities in that country. So with that as a way of introduction, Liz, welcome to the show, and thanks for joining us on New Books and Genocide Studies. Thank you very much for having me. Um, and, and as we get started, I just want to point out uh, to the listeners, you may actually have this podcast come through your podcast feed first. Uh, Roddy Brett, my interview with Roddy Brett is um, taking a little bit more time with post-production, um, but it will be there eventually. Um, and so, Liz, uh, let's start maybe with um, giving you a chance just to talk a little bit about yourself. How, how did you get um, interested in Guatemala and in Latin American studies, and how did you decide to pursue that for a career? Well, I was at college in the mid-1980s when Central America was on the front page of the newspapers because of the social mobilizations in the region and the controversies over U.S. policy. When I graduated college, I was hired by one of my professors to be a research assistant looking at the issue of refugee repatriation in Guatemala during the first year of the civilian government. And based on that experience, I lived in Guatemala for several years during the 1980s and I worked with a Guatemalan Research Institute called the Association for the Advancement of the Social Sciences. I worked with a Guatemalan anthropologist named Myrna Mack, uh, as well as several other people also worked on that research team. We were traveling around the country looking at the aftermath of the counterinsurgency, what had happened in the Mayan villages with the massive displacement of over one million people in the Guatemalan countryside during the early 1980s. We were interested in knowing what were the possibilities for people to return to their villages, what had happened to their lands, what was the situation of militarization in those villages, 
And so we looked at both internally displaced populations and also refugees who had fled Guatemala and were living in camps in Mexico. So we spent several years uh, doing that type of research. Myrna Mack, the coordinator of our research team, was assassinated after she published her first study on the issue of in the internally displaced populations on September 11, 1990, by a army death squad. And I, I, I'm happy to talk about mm. how that case became an important yeah. human rights uh, trial. Uh, so fast forward, um, during the 1990s, I collaborated with the Guatemalan Truth Commission uh, as a researcher and as part of the team that wrote the Truth Commission report. And I worked on the section of the report that dealt with the issue of forced displacement, among other parts of the report. And then so fast forward again, as the Rios-Mont uh, trial is being prepared, I was contacted by the Guatemalan Attorney General's office and asked to present uh, an expert witness report about forced displacement in the area where the genocide trial was focused on, which was the Maya Ishil region in the northern highlands of Guatemala. And that was based on the work that I had done with Myrna Mack and also the work that I had done uh, with the Truth Commission in the 1990s. So you, your degree is in geography, is that right? Yes. So why did you decide for geography? Well, I had studied history as an undergraduate. I had worked with anthropologists mm -hmm. after uh, getting my, my undergraduate degree. Geography seemed like a way that I could merge those two disciplines, mm -hmm. uh, where I could look at questions of international development from a critical perspective, where I could continue doing work on migration and population displacement. And so geography really seemed like a way that I could combine all of my different interests. And so you now teach, and you teach at the University of Arizona. Um, I'm wondering how you find your students. Um, how aware are they of, of Latin America? How interested are they in the region? And in particular, given that they now are born after the Cold War, do they feel some kind of connection or interest in the events in places like Guatemala or Argentina or Chile in that period? Well, Tucson has a very strong connection to human rights issues hmm. in Latin America. During the 1980s, Tucson, the community of Tucson, was one of the areas of the United States where the sanctuary movement arose. Mm. And that was a sort of underground railroad for Central American refugees who were crossing the border from Guatemala and El Salvador, mostly, who were fleeing the political violence in those countries, but they were not recognized by the Reagan administration as refugees because the Reagan administration was supporting the governments of both Guatemala and El Salvador. And so a very important humanitarian movement arose in the United States in this period in the 1980s, and, and Tucson was one of the centers of that. So there has been for many years a very strong connection uh, between Southern Arizona and Central America. And I, I think students pick up on that. Mm -hmm. uh, we have a very diverse student body. 
we have many students who are uh, bilingual, who are very interested in, in Mexico, in Central America. They're very interested in questions of human rights. They're very interested in questions of U.S. foreign policy. Uh, I think you're right, obviously, that there has been um, a generational shift in that, you know, these students have been born since the Cold War. Um, you know, many times they're surprised when they hear uh, the history of what happened in the Cold War and what the United States involvement in Central America was, but they're very eager to learn, and they make a lot of connections between the history of the United States involvement in Central America and also things that are going on today. Uh, we have, you know, again, we have a wave of Central American uh, migrants mm -hmm. coming across the border, and so we have many of our students are are active in today's humanitarian movements mm. uh, around the new, new sanctuary movements uh, and so on. So students are very sharp at, at making those connections. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I'm teaching a class right now this semester on human rights in Latin America, and one of the questions that I'm asking students to think about is how the impunity of the past is related to the impunity of the mm. present. In other mm -hmm. words, how that history of political violence, human rights violations, left Central America, left you know other Latin American countries with a legacy that they're still grappling with in, in terms of how to overcome a certain militarization of civilian institutions, how to overcome issues of being able to prosecute human rights cases, about being able to build more accountability. And so, uh, you know, students are, are very sharp at, at picking up those historical parallels. And, and that may be a, a good transition to the, the journal article or essay, issue, because, of course, the, the issue that you and Diane put together is, in fact, about, in many ways, the aftermath of genocide rather than the genocide itself. So so why did you decide this kind of special issue was, was necessary, and, and how did you decide to focus it on that um, aspect? Because the, the trial itself was precedent-setting, mm. um, it was really the first, my understanding is that it was the first genocide trial to be held in the uh, regular courts mm. in the country where the crimes were committed. And so we really wanted to look at that. We really wanted to look at mm. what did the trial mean for Guatemala. So we'll look at the trial in a moment, um, but some of our listeners may not be familiar with, with how the genocide ended. And, and, and so maybe we could start by asking you to explain just a little bit about um, how, how did Guatemala come to peace, if, if that's the right word, and, and how did the peace accords take into account questions of transitional justice or reparations or truth-finding? Okay. Uh, so the, the, what we call the genocide in Guatemala happened in a particular period in the early 1980s, uh, let's say between 1981 and 1983. That was what we might call the first phase of the Army's counterinsurgency strategy. Well, perhaps not the first phase. The first phase <laughs> was perhaps more more selective violence, more urban-based violence. 
But when the massive rural violence hit between 1981 and 1983, that was what we might call a, a war of extermination uh, against Mayan villages in particular parts of the highlands. After 1983, the army began another phase of the counterinsurgency, which we might call a war of reconstruction. And that was to rebuild the areas that had been destroyed, to resettle displaced populations into militarized villages that the army controlled via its civil patrol system, which was a kind of paramilitary organization made up of villagers that the army organized um, into into patrols. Uh, and so that was a that was a phase that lasted from 1983, really sort of through, really kind of through the end of the 1980s. Part of that phase of the War of Reconstruction involved holding elections in Guatemala in 1985. And so a new civilian government, Vinicio Cerezo, took power in 1986. Well, took office, let's mm. say, not, not, it didn't necessarily take power. <laughs> um, what you had in Guatemala in that period was the, civilianizing, let's say, of national level institutions, mm. but at the same time, really a deepening militarization of rural power structures in much of the country, right, mm. through the civil patrol system, through our, the army's control over local development institutions in the rural areas. And so I'm giving you all this background. Sure in order to um, better understand how the peace process fits into the counterinsurgency, right? Mm -hmm. So I, I think there are a couple of questions to understand, you know, how Guatemalan got to the peace accords. Um, you know, one question is understanding how the army's counterinsurgency unfolded in these different stages, right? And so once the army felt like it had regained control over wide areas of the countryside, it was willing to have elections in Guatemala and you know, even looking forward to an eventual um, resolution of the, of the armed conflict as part of the counterinsurgency. The other level that we need to analyze this has to do with regional uh, politics and indeed the international context. And so hmm. We're, we're talking about the end of the Cold War by the late 1980s. There are peace processes happening first in Nicaragua, then in El Salvador. Guatemala is the last Central American country uh, to have peace accords. And indeed, it, in that period between the 1980s and when the final peace accords are signed in 1996, you actually have a acceleration of the armed conflict in Guatemala. The army launches in 1987 a new offensive, and then again in 1994, uh, trying to gain leverage vis-a-vis um, -vis the, the peace accords. Um, the URMG rebel movement is still active militarily in remote parts of the country, but it, it's no longer a military threat. It's no longer going to take power. Um, so the, the, but the peace accords are very interesting because even though the UNG is not a, a, um, a credible military threat, the peace accords are pretty broad. Hmm. Um, they, they deal with issues 
about ending the war, so demobilizing the civil patrols, demobilizing the armed combatants. They deal with the return of the refugees. Um, and th- but they also have some broader components about um, creating a land registry, about issues of recognizing multiculturalism. Um, those issues will become much more complicated after the signing of the peace accords. But there, there is some um, effort to grapple with the underlying causes of the conflict. Huh. There was, um, there were a, a many, many meetings um, that that occurred within Guatemalan civil society around the peace process. There was a, a, a group that was formed called the uh, Asamblea de, de la Sociedad Civil, or a, of assembly of, of civil society groups that made a lot of recommendations um, for the peace accords. So there was, the peace accords were, they they did galvanize some discussion in Guatemala about the underlying causes of the conflict. Um, Now to your question about how transitional justice was envisioned within the the peace process, it wasn't a term that was really used yet um, at that time. there was attention to, again, to issues of demobilization and to issues of how to reintegrate um, particular sectors back into society, whether those would be the armed combatants, the refugees who were coming back from Mexico. Uh, there also was one accord that was specifically devoted to the creation of a truth commission, and truth commissions were uh, coming onto the scene at this time in the in the 1990s, South Africa had a truth commission at the same time that Guatemala had a truth commission. So truth commissions were seen as part of some kind of process of transition. In the Guatemala case, uh, really the signatories of the accord that created the truth commission did not really envision having a very strong commission. They, they envisioned that this would be something with a short mandate. The original mandate was only for six months. Mm. Uh, they also included language in the accord uh, stipulating that the Truth Commission could not name names. That, and the, also the, there was language in the accord that oh. the um, evidence that the Truth Commission would uncover could not be used uh, directly in a judicial case. Uh, so the idea was that there would be something perfunctory. You know, okay, yes, we have to address that these things happen, but mm-hmm. let's do it quickly and move on. But, um, as I said, there, there was a, quite a bit of civil society participation in the broader process that created the truth, the peace accords. And so when the Truth Commission started its work in Guatemala, um, a lot of people decided to participate in it. Huh. Um, there had already been um, a multi-year hum- major human rights project that the Catholic Church um, had organized, the recovery of the historical memory project. That was a very important precedent in Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Uh, many people had come forward to to speak with the Catholic Church Remy uh, investigators, and so that gave people experience 
at the village level with providing testimony. So that, that helped pave the way for the Truth Commission without a doubt. And many people did decide to participate uh, in the Truth Commission. Guatemalans were, were hired as researchers. Organizations came forward and, and brought their people. Uh, and so the, the Truth Commission process became, I think, more dynamic than was originally uh, envisioned in the Accords. And so that set an important precedent. The Truth Commission report, the Truth Commissioners uh, did acknowledge that acts of genocide had been committed in Guatemala in the early 1980s. And the argument that the Truth Commission put forward in its report became very important because it was later used to build the genocide cases. And so, to answer your question about how traditional <laughs> justice was envisioned um, in the peace process, it, it wasn't something that was directly inserted into the peace sure. courts. You know, the language of transitional justice was not there. Um, there was, you know, a strong push to minimize that opening. And yet, Guatemalans themselves pushed that opening um, as far as they could. Um, and so the peace accords are not the the end of the line. The peace yeah. accords were really just the beginning. They were beginning of a discussion about how to deal with issues of the past and how to deal with issues of justice and how to deal with issues of, of memory. So, and those, so, yeah. and again, those, those struggles have continued. So, so just remind me, um, what years is the Truth Commission meeting? The Truth Commission operated between 1997 okay. and 1999, and its uh, its final report came out in February 1999. And and you you've painted this co really compelling picture about, as, as at least as I'm imagining it, this kind of growing confidence and excitement on the part of civil society at a recognition that they can actually play an active role in remembering their past. And what's the government's response to this? Or, or if not the government, the, the response of people who had been on the other side in the war? Uh, to the Truth Commission report? Yeah. Oh, well, the whole process about this kind of growing activism that was not envisioned in the peace accords. Right. Um, well, the government did not have a response to the to the Truth Commission report per se. Mm -hmm. um, President Alvaro Arzu was at the ceremony where the report was presented, and he did not even get up to receive the report. Mm. So the the government um, really tried to ignore the Truth Commission report, huh. um, as did the army. However, for for Guatemalan human rights organizations, Guatemalan civil society organizations, activist organizations, the Truth Commission report was important. It's not that it told us something that we didn't know already yeah. about Guatemala. Mm -hmm. There, you know, there had been a lot of human rights reports done about Guatemala. The Catholic Church report, um, the Remen report, had already come out. So it's not like the Truth Commission report revealed 
you know, a kind of hidden history. But it did officialize that history yeah. because it was a part of the peace process. Um, it gave that history a a prominence, um, and it was also it also gave a perhaps more of a national coverage um, where people who were working in particular parts of the country could could understand, okay, what happened here was really part of a national strategy. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it, it, there, there were some things that the Truth Commission report did that were important. Again, I think it's important to recognize that the Truth Commission report was produced at a particular moment. Mm-hmm. It's not the end of the story. Um, there are... Um, there are ongoing efforts to look at the the history of what what happened in, in the war in Guatemala. There have been more local level efforts, uh, so maybe um, investigations that are focused on particular municipalities. There have been efforts, for example, in on the Pacific Coast in the municipality of Santa Lucia. There have been efforts in the Ischil area to do more sort of municipal level efforts. Um, Guatemalan women's organizations, a few years after the Truth Commission, they did their own major uh, report um, emphasizing sexual violence that had occurred Mm -hmm. in Guatemala's uh, civil war, which had been something that the Truth Commission had touched on but had not really developed in, in much depth. Uh, so the Truth Commission report, I think, was an important stepping stone. It definitely hasn't been the end of the story. Yeah. So, so let me ask you about that. Um, often these these reports are are weighty volumes written um, in, in in maybe I should just say written in in on paper. Um, to what extent? We've seen across the world, right, with the introduction of new kinds of technology and new kinds of media, that that um, civil society has has um, taken advantage of those kind of media to report and to uh, witness and, and to record in different kinds of forms. Um, in this kind of investigation, that or these investigations that you're talking about um, in, in Guatemala, to what extent, or has the introduction of new kind of technology and media shaped the way that these investigations are conducted or recorded or presented? Well, I think you put your finger on uh, a problem. So the with the Truth Commission report, it was 12 volumes. Yeah. Um, you know, very few people are going to read the whole report. There were various versions of the report that circulated different ways in Guatemala. So um, popular versions of the report were produced. Excerpts of the report were published in the newspaper. Uh, There was a a radio broadcast that that used portions of the report um, that I think did reach into um, areas of the country where perhaps even the newspapers uh, didn't reach. There have been some efforts to incorporate parts of the report into school curriculum. Uh-huh. I think all these things are, there's an ongoing struggle. Yeah. Um, part of the uh, problem, I think, of absorbing something like the Truth Commission report is sometimes 
all that's picked up on are the the grim profiles of the violence, the statistics, for example, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, without really being able to absorb the the analysis that the Truth Commission report did about what caused this conflict, what was it all about, what were people struggling for, what were the different kinds of political economic visions that 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 people on different sides of this conflict had, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, so I, I think in the aftermath of the Truth Commission, some things did pierce the public consciousness um, in a ways in ways that it's hard to go back from that. For example, the just the overall profile of what happened and the and the grim statistics of the violence. But I I think the historical analysis is still something that's that's being debated. Yeah. I think that there's uh, there's a lot of room uh, to to keep exploring the the issue of what what historical memory really means. So you you mentioned that at least at the beginning these the Truth Commission and and maybe by extension some of the other parts of the peace accords were not meant to bring people to trial, and yet there are trials. Um, so so to what extent are perpetrators um, brought to trial in the years before the Rios Mont trial. Yes, uh, the the effort to bring perpetrators to trial starts even when the war is still going hmm. on. Um, the first cases really are are brought. Uh, I believe the first case, one of the first cases, was the um, uh, kidnapping cases. It's called the Panel Blanco case uh, in Guatemala City. Uh, even in the in the late 1980s. Really? Wow. Mm-hmm. Uh, it, there's a very very important case after 1990 that I referred to at the beginning. Yeah. The, the Mirna Mack case. Uh, this is a very important case. Uh, Mirna Mack was a Guatemalan anthropologist killed in September 1990. Her sister, Helen Mack, decided to pursue the investigation of the case. And not only to bring charges against the actual assassins, uh, which she she did in the early 1990s, and and that case went to trial in 1993, and one of the assassins was convicted uh, and, and sentenced uh, to prison in 1993. But then Helen Mack decided that she was going to pursue the investigation against the intellectual authors of Myrna Mack's assassination. And that became a very important precedent that I think had a, a direct bearing on the ability to bring Real Smont to trial. That was the, really the first case in Guatemala using the argument of the chain of command uh-huh. to bring higher level uh, military officers to trial. In the Myrna Mack case, I mean, Helen Mack worked for 12 years uh, to bring military officers to trial. And that case finally went to trial in 2002. Uh, And and again, what what Helen was doing and what what other people began to do um, in the 1990s was really to push the Guatemalan judicial system to, to force it to take these sensitive cases. And so the work of uh, family members, the work of victims' organizations in, in Guatemala 
has to be acknowledged. It, yeah. it, it, it cannot be overstated uh, how important that was uh, to try to expand those spaces for justice and to try to make the judiciary um, act the way it was supposed to act. Other things also came together to enable the real small uh, trial to happen. Uh, for example, the creation of special high-risk courts Mm-hmm. where judges receive special training uh, to, to take on sensitive, complicated human rights cases uh, and also special security for those, for those judges and prosecutors. So, so let's talk about the Rios Mont trial. Um, and, and, and there's a really compelling um, and, and well-written article in, in your... In your um, Compilation in the issue about, about this. How, how does the prosecution present their case? Um, how, how, how do they try and persuade um, the judge that Rios Mont was in fact guilty? It's really a mosaic of evidence. Uh, first and foremost, you have the testimony of survivors, uh, and nearly 100 uh, people uh, testified. Survivors. Uh, testified in the case, and, and so that was really extraordinary. Uh, some of them had been children when the genocide happened, and some of them had been adults. Uh, some of them had, or most of them had lost uh, family members, sometimes multiple family members. So first and foremost, you, you had the, the courage of people in the Shiel area to, to come forward and, and, and say what happened. Uh, that was combined with other kinds of evidence, uh, forensic data, for example, the exhumation of mass graves um, in that region of Guatemala. So uh, several dozen, I think, I think over 40 Guatemalan uh, forensic anthropologists hmm. testified on, on that data. And, and that really backed up what the survivors were saying had, had happened. And then uh, that was also combined with um, military documents, which showed chain of command. The document Operación Sofia, mm-hmm. which was a uh, military uh, plan in, the, in 1982, and had, it was a, a, a daily law of military operations from 1982, which really demonstrated that there had been a chain of command, uh, that the, milit- the soldiers were reporting up the chain of command what they were doing. Uh-huh. Uh, other military documents, um, major military plans, Victoria 82, Permeso 83, those were the those were the general military doctrines that were governing what was happening. So, if you combine those military documents, you can make the chain of command argument that the orders are coming from above, from Riosmont and his his staff. Orders are coming from above, and they're being executed. So, if you could look at those military documents, you see the sort of two-way flow of information. So, that was really important. Also, uh, there were uh, contextual reports, uh, for example, um, a report on, on racism. There was, there was a report on 
what the national security doctrine meant in Guatemala, um, the report that I did about the logic of the mass forced displacement, mm. and those those reports, those contextual re- reports, spoke to the issue of intent. Uh, so that that they the prosecution could prove the events that had happened, the fact that Rios Mont had ordered those actions to happen, that the army had a had a general doctrine of annihilation that included Mayan populations, and that there was an intent to destroy, at least in part, these populations. Mm-hmm. Uh, that there was a logic of counterinsurgency, but there was an underlying element of racism against the Mayan populations, which led them to be seen as an internal enemy during the war. So, so you you very casually kind of slipped in the report you did. Uh, can you talk a little bit about your experience of testifying? Well, why did you decide to do it, and what was it like? Well, I was approached by the attorney general's office. At first, I, I didn't know that. Um, it was going to be such a prominent case. Huh. Um, their initial communication to me was, could, could you please um, provide us with an expert report for a significant human rights case? <laughs> and I did, I did not know that it was going to be the genocide case. I did not know that it was going to be Rio's huh. month. Um, why did I agree to do it? There was never any question yeah. uh, in my mind. I, I did it because I was asked to do it, and because I had a certain kind of specialized knowledge based out of the work that I'd done in the 1980s. Um, the army, if the army had not killed my colleague Mirna Mac, mm-hmm. I'm sure she would have been the one to present the research. Um, so I. I participated because I had a professional and ethical obligation to share that knowledge that I had. So what, if I can press you just a little bit more, what was it like to sit in the same room with with the person who's being accused of genocide? Well, honestly, I was very focused on just getting through my testimony. Yeah. Uh, when I walked into the auditorium, I didn't even look at Rios Mont. Hmm. I I just wanted to take my seat <laughs> and and do the job uh, and and get through it. Uh, I there I, I did not have a translator in the room, hmm. so I I had to give my answers in Spanish, and so I was very focused on getting through that uh, and. Trying to be as as clear and compelling as, as I could be with the information that I had. Uh, so yeah, I was very very focused on that. Huh. I, didn't even, I didn't even look at real smart. So 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 were you in the courtroom for other people's testimony or just for yours? Uh, so we were not allowed to be in the courtroom until after uh, we testified. Um, okay. I, I I did so after I testified, I did go back into the courtroom. 
uh, and I, I, I listened to a few people. Uh, and then uh, I left the country before the trial was over. Okay. Uh, well, so, so let's I, – I want to stick on this topic of, of testimony for a little bit, um, but move from you to other people because one of the – one of the really striking parts of this trial is the testimony of survivors of sexual violence. And, and there's a couple essays in, in, in the collection here that talk about this and, and, and talk about the ethics and aftermath of, of this testimony. So, so can you say something about how those who testified, by those I mean victims of testi- sexual violence, but, but maybe others too as well, um, how do they understand what they're doing and what do they hope to achieve? Well, I can't speak directly to this yeah. question because I I have not spoken to people uh, after testifying, mm-hmm. so I don't want to speak for people in that sense. Uh, the interviews that I have read um, would suggest that, by and large, at least the pe- people who have spoken maybe to, in, to the press about this have said that they feel satisfied with what they did. Mm-hmm. You know, even though Rios Mont did not end up in jail and, and the, the, the process is still ongoing, that people felt like they had done justice to their family members, their friends who, who had perished, that, that they had done everything that they could do. And you have to remember that this trial is the result of a very long process yeah. that that many people in the Shield area have been trying to bring this case to trial for years and years. Uh, so while I'm sure there is a level of frustration that you know that Rios Mont did not end up in jail, from what people have said publicly, it it, it seems like there is at least some satisfaction on the part of of the survivors that. They at least did everything that that they could do, uh, and we we know from I think other studies that have been done in other parts of the world, um, other mm-hmm. um, other major trials like this, that uh, you know survivors are not necessarily under much illusion about how much the state can really help them. Um, on the other hand, there there is there is something about telling your story in a public venue, uh, feeling like you've honored uh, the people who are no longer with you. Hmm. Uh, so, again, I don't want to speak for the survivors, yeah. but I'm just relating what uh, I have read in, in interviews that people have given. As you said, the trial – well, maybe I'll let you, you... – Say this: the, the trial has kind of a unique ending. How, how did the trial end? It hasn't ended. <laughs> well, fair enough. <laughs> um, so the the prosecution had a very very solid case, uh, as I detailed, with many different kinds of evidence. Mm-hmm. The defense did not really present a case. Um, they did not present. Um, they did not really try to refute the charges. What they did was to try to throw wrenches into the gears of the legal system uh, through a mechanism in, that in Guatemala is called the legal amparo, uh, which is like a, a, a writ of, of, of habeas corpus, which is supposed to, to operate in, to defend 
the defendants in the legal process, but has really been abused in Guatemala really to stop these human rights cases. And uh, so one of these motions actually worked, um, and it stalled the process. And so the Constitutional Court rolled back uh, the, the trial to uh, a pre-verdict uh, point of the trial. And so that has been litigated really ever since. And um, so the verdict was, it was not overturned on the merits of an appeal. Mm -hmm. um, it was simply disappeared, one might say. The verdict was disappeared. <laughs> Uh, and so the trial is still open. Um, now, what has happened subsequently is that the courts have ruled that uh, Rios Montt, he, he's still under indictment, he's still being charged in, in, in this crime, but he's been ruled um, mentally incompetent to stand trial in a regular mm -hmm. process. So even if, even if the case does go forward, uh, Rios Montt will not face jail time at this point. But the case is really mired down in, in the court. Uh, I, I, don't, I, I, I don't know if it will go forward. I don't really see a way forward. Um, it's hmm. very difficult, I think, for the Guatemalan judges to really overturn the, the work of the, the trial judges in the genocide case. Mm -hmm. And there are still so much abuse, there's still so much abuse of the Amparo system in Guatemala on the part of defense attorneys uh, that right now the case is, is mired down and I don't see it really going forward. Although Rios Montt is also being charged in another case, uh, which is a, a massacre case. Huh. Uh, and so that case might possibly go to trial. It's a different region of the country, so it's not exactly the same case. Hmm. Uh, and, of course, uh, other cases have gone forward yeah. since the genocide trial. Uh, you mentioned the issue of sexual violence. Last year there was the Sefer Zarco case uh, about sexual slavery uh, during hmm. the war in the Koban area of Guatemala, so a different region of Guatemala. Uh, that was also a major precedent-setting case uh, for the ways that it examined uh, how sexual violence functioned as a weapon of war. So, so to what degree have these trials changed, or how, how, to what degree have the outcomes, or the, especially the testimonies in this trial, become part of the public discourse in Guatemala? Has it changed the way in which Guatemalans remember the events of the 80s and 90s, or, or is it simply hardened each different side's positions about it? I, I think that's a topic that's worthy of some investigation. Mm. Um, Many things are going on at, at, at once, I think. Um, certainly, one can say that there has been maybe a certain polarization, um, at least in the media. Um, that was one of the strategies that the defense used, uh, was to kind of use, use the media to resurrect a Cold War era discourse. Mm. Mm -hmm. uh, where you know any 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 opponents 
were they tried to de- delegitimize them, associate them with the guerrillas, really just bring them back to this Cold War idea of the internal enemy. So that that kind of polarization did take place because it was a specific strategy of the defense. <laughs> On the other hand, uh, I think the extraordinary publicity that the genocide trial got and the Zephyr-Sarko case uh, after that has impacted the ways in which uh, a lot of people in Guatemala, especially perhaps urban people, um, understand the history of what happened. Mm. um, Remember that the Truth Commission in the 1990s did not include public testimony. So even though the report came out, uh, you know, Guatemalans did not have a chance to really hear that process in a public way. And so the genocide trial broke new ground in that sense because hmm. it was live streamed, uh, it was on television, and, and so certainly it, it, it impacted uh, people. Uh, I believe that it enabled a lot of people, perhaps in the city, to realize just how widespread mm. the army's crimes were, and how calculated that you know that, that what happened in the Mayan villages was not collateral damage; mm. that it was an intentional strategy of extermination. And I think for many people in the urban areas, that might have been the first time that they were really exposed to hearing survivors talk about what had happened. Some people have argued that the the massive protests that happened in Guatemala in 2015 were linked in some ways, perhaps, to the experience of the genocide trial and just the, the realization of just how far the corruption goes in Guatemala and just how implicated um, institutions like the Guatemalan army and the government are um, in in this history. Mm. Uh, on the other hand, I, I think um, there's a there's a there's still a lot to be done in terms of thinking about what historical memory means. Um, it's one thing to recognize the history of the violence, but it's also important to think about, you know, why did all that happen? What was at stake? What were people really struggling for? What were these different political economic visions that that were at stake in in the conflict? And I think that process is is ongoing. We're, we're, we're running out of time, um, but I, I, I guess I have one more kind of content question and then, then a couple wrap-up questions. And the content question is that, that among people who study genocide and mass atrocities, it, I think there's a widespread agreement that Guatemala belongs among the cases of such violence. But at least among my students, they've heard of the Holocaust and they've maybe heard of Rwandan or Armenia or, or, or possibly Bosnia. Guatemala doesn't come up. I, I wonder to what extent, if, if any, you, you can comment on why Guatemala is not part of the broader global conversation about this kind of violence. 
I think one answer is that while the atrocities were were happening, it was very hard to report on Guatemala. Mm-hmm. Um, there had there had been uh, almost total elimination of human rights organizations inside the country during the 1980s. Uh, another issue probably has to do with the ways that the genocide is bound up with questions of counterinsurgency. Mm. So that's still a debate uh, in Guatemala. Were Mayans killed as Mayans or were they killed because they were organizing against the state? So I I think that that is one of the issues that we tried to get at um, in this special issue. Mm-hmm. Um, how Racism and counterinsurgency were intertwined um, in the Guatemalan genocide. Uh, and one thing that I do want to mention about the special issue yeah. is that uh, it includes Guatemalan scholars as well as mm-hmm. scholars from outside the, the country. So uh, it's a it is an opportunity to uh, see uh, how how Guatemalan scholars are addressing this question. Well, it's a wonderful, wonderful contribution to the research, um, and I learned a lot from it, and I want to encourage um, the listeners to go out and, and look at it. Again, it's the Journal of Genocide Research. It's published by Routledge. Um, comes out four times a year. This particular one uh, is, a, is a combined issue, June and September of 2016, and so, as I said, I think it's w- well worth um, tracking down and reading. Um, Liz, uh, I always end with the same couple questions, um, and one, and this is maybe particularly appropriate given that at least for me it's finals week and there is somewhere down the line light at the end of the tunnel, and I'm not really sure if it's daylight or a train coming at me, but the grading has to be done sometime. Um, what should I read over break? What did you find while you were working on this? Um, meaningful or important or particularly um necessary for people who want to understand um, Guatemala or mass violence? Well, I was going to recommend a, a recent film that should... Yeah, that'd be great, too. Yeah, which you can, uh, I think, is still in theaters in the United States. Hmm. Uh, the film Ishkanu, huh. uh, which is a, a new feature film that, that's come out of Guatemala. It's a Guatemalan-made uh, film um, that is... Um, Showing, I believe, in in theaters around the world now. So, I would recommend that film. So, so let me interrupt. So can you spell it, please? Yes. Ishkanu, um, is that right? Ishkanu, um, I X C A N U L. Huh. Um, and so, if you want to get a, a Guatemalan filmmaker's perspective yeah. on issues of daily everyday experiences of racism in Guatemala. Um, this is a very interesting new film that just huh. came out. Well, I will have to look for it. That will be wonderful. Um, and then last, and it's maybe an unfair question, but I guess academics deserve it. Um, what are you working on now? <laughs> um, I, I'm trying to write uh, about the, the trial. Um, huh. Some of the questions that you've asked me are actually questions that I'm I'm thinking of, uh, and I especially in this uh, moment that we're in right now in the United States, mm. 
I'm, I'm also working on um, issues of uh, Central American immigration into the United States and some of the politics around that in, in different parts of the country. Well, it sounds like you're busy. I hope that um, when uh, whenever you summarize those books and or those thoughts and, and research and put them down in a book, you'll join us again. But I wanted to say thank you so much for taking the time. Um, it was wonderful, um, and we really appreciate it. Thanks so much for asking me to join you, and thanks for your interest in the history of the Guatemalan genocide. All right, take care. You've been listening to an interview with Elizabeth Oglesby about the special issue of the Journal of Genocide Research, edited by Elizabeth and Diane Nelson. If you enjoyed this interview, you can listen to previous podcasts through iTunes or from the webpage for New Books and Genocide Studies, part of the New Books Network of Podcasts. I hope you'll join us next time for the second part of our short series on Guatemala. I'll talk then with Roddy Brett about his new book, The Origins and Dynamics of Genocide, Political Violence in Guatemala. Until then, thanks for the download and have a great month.